Hi, this is Rachel Marie Cover. We've got a special guest, Esther. She's going to tell us a little bit about herself, and then she's going to answer some questions about being married to a borderline and the long-term effects it's had on her life. Um, Esther, tell us a little bit about yourself. Uh, well, I'm... Uh, I'm a mom of now six kids, five of them with my ex-husband, um... I was a stay-at-home homeschool mom uh, most of my uh, married life with my ex-husband. We were married for almost 20 years. Um, and then since being divorced, I'm a registered nurse. I remarried now to a wonderful person and have a <clears throat> child with him. And have a pretty complex adult life. <laughs> well, anybody with six kids has a relatively complex adult life. Yeah, that's um, true. So here's some of the questions that we have. Um, when did you notice that? What was the first thing you noticed something wasn't right? <clears throat> well, I think, um, early in our relationship, uh, there were a lot of things I noticed, but I didn't necessarily, I saw them as, I more accepted them as just part of uh, his personality, you know, seeing that as just who he was. And um, I'm a pretty accepting person of people that are, that differences in people. But um, one of the things that I always, that kind of struck me as odd was he was extremely emotional. Um, he could go from, laughing to crying. Um, and then, uh, after we were married, uh, those uh, mood swings turned into, uh, rage episodes and, um, that I think it was a pretty gradual process, um, in our relationship that I started, I think I just got to where I was, we were busy having kids and I think of a lot of things I just didn't even notice or I chose not to pay attention to, um, just as a survival skills on my part. Um, I think that after we were married, I did have conversations with, uh, some other, uh, married women along the way and they would make little comments here and there, um, kind of like wives do talk about how their relationships are going in their marriage and stuff. And, um, one particular time, uh, I was married, uh, when I was married to him, he, there was a girlfriend of mine and he had gotten really angry and, um, about something. I don't even, I have no recollection what it was, but she said, uh, he was, he was saying that I, my standards were just too high. And, something about I had gotten into this conversation with this other Christian woman and she was like, Oh no, your standards are not too high. She says, this is just what you should expect. Like this is what you should expect from a Christian husband. And I don't even remember what the conversation was about, but she was probably the first woman that called me out to tell me, um, that my, uh, 
my willingness to give in and assume that he was right. And that what, when he would say my expectations were too high, that, that I wasn't the problem, that his behavior was the problem. And I just kept always accepting the blame for his behavior. And she was probably the first person that, that brought that to my attention. And then things just kind of grew from there. I continued to have, I had an awareness that things were not right. I had awareness that we needed help. I spent a lot of time reading books, um, thinking that I could just fix things, um, that maybe if I, there was just a piece of information out there that we could get that would make things better. And um, we got in contact with, uh, at one point, somehow we got involved with a, a Christian organization that had conferences. And so um, he went to a conference, one of the men's conferences and came home uh, with a friend um, and introduced me to this friend. And this friend was actually probably uh, very instrumental and really challenged me, challenging me not to accept um, what had become our norm and really calling out what was already so dysfunctional and I just kept accepting it and I kept accepting the blame for it and I kept accepting the responsibility for it and he was the one that said that I should not settle for that um, and that was actually the words he used that I was settling for things that um, I shouldn't ex I shouldn't settle for and I, I didn't really see it as, as that up to that point. I really kind of saw it. I, I think people don't understand that a lot of women are just trying to do everything they can to keep their family together. And their behavior is not necessarily, it is enabling behavior. Um, they do enable their uh, spouse when they do that. But it is, it's an attempt at survival. Um, they're just trying to survive their life. They're trying to keep their family together and they're trying not to bail when things get tough. And I think that that's an admirable quality, but in some circumstances, I think that people don't realize, um, how dire their circumstances really are and how, no matter how many attempts they make at saving their situation, that saving it is not really possible. And it took me a long time to get to that point. Um, what do you think causes, what, what do you think caused the BPD in your ex? I'm not for sure. All of the causes I, there are suspicions of what causes BPD. Um, I do believe that abandonment is a big, uh, triggering factor for BPD, um, <clears throat> the the sad thing was as by the time that BPD was a conversation in our relationship and it really was never a conversation in our relationship it was a conversation that came up through a last ditch effort of, of marriage counseling um, and it was the conversation came up in private between me and the counselor um, but the the by the time that conversation came up and what causes BPD, my cup was so full of receiving the, the abuse from, the, from him 
that I couldn't accept one more reason or excuse or story as to why he was who he was. I needed him to accept some accept responsibility somewhere, just a piece, just one shred of responsibility. And that I ne- if I could have seen that at one at any point he would accept responsibility for any of it, I probably could have listened, but my my cup was just overflowing with receiving all of the blame and and I just couldn't tolerate that anymore. I do I do know that uh, there was a lot of events that happened in his childhood that were, you know, that happened to him. Uh, having a sick uh, sister with a with what they believed was a terminal illness and took all the attention from him, and he was, uh, as he says, abandoned by his parents. Um, and, you know, the, the sad thing was, is it was actually a bonding moment for us because I had a sister who had cancer as a, as a child and, um, died from cancer. And so I think, uh, they use the word trauma bonding. And I think there was some trauma bonding for us early in our relationship because we, I, we identified with each other's pain in that, um, and the sad thing is, is trauma bonding doesn't build a good marriage. So, um, we, we could identify with each other's pain. And the sad thing was, as my sister died, his lived and my family has dysfunction. My, uh, my family had dysfunction growing up, but we have healed through so much of that. Whereas his family seemed to never heal from that trauma and has continued to carry it with them. So I think that was probably the cause of the BPD, but there could have been other issues as well. Um, there is suspicions that uh, there could have been uh, sexual abuse in the family. But again, I don't, I never was directly witness to any of that. Um, I just have heard stories of it and I'm not close enough with any of those people to even see any signs or symptoms of it. It's just more of the stories that I've heard. So yeah. Um, how was the BPD affecting your marriage? Um, it was, I became a caretaker, uh, and I was a caretaker from early on and I didn't realize I was the responsible party in the relationship. I was the one that was always having to hold it together. I had to be the rock, um, for the instability, um, there, there was never a time when I was able to fall back on somebody else's strength and stability. I was always having to be the strong one. Um, I was having to make the responsible decisions. I was have, I felt like I was always having to fix irresponsible decisions. Um, I was always having to counsel on how to be a responsible adult, um, how to be a parent. And it became even more apparent uh, when I had children and my children began to um, have more responsible behavior as children than uh, the parent. And so that that became very apparent at that point. Um, when we did finally end up in counseling, that was actually one of the 
discussions that the counselor had with me was that I would have to accept the fact that I would be, that caretaking would be my forever role in this relationship and that it, I would have to see him as, as someone who has a, <clears throat> a permanent disability and a terminal illness if I was, and that I would have to accept that as part of my uh, future if I was going to remain in the relationship. Um, but I would also, he also encouraged me to uh, figure out a way to begin uh, working on financial stability because I couldn't depend on my ex for financial stability or my husband at that point. <clears throat> so those are really hard conversations uh, to have because I had already, uh, I feel like uh, being a caretaker for someone really affects your ability to have romantic interest in someone. Um, it, like a child, you don't have romantic interest for a child because that's not the type of relationship you have. And so it began to feel like I was taking care of a child. Um, that a child that emotionally uh, and practically couldn't manage their world. And the, the older he got seemed to be more and more instability. It was, it, nothing ever got better. It only ever got worse. So... That was a hard, um, hard place to be is to have that conversation with the counselor where he was challenging me to make a decision whether I was willing to take that on for a life, lifetime, um, which is hard. As a Christian, you have, uh, when you do your vows, you believe that you're going to be married for life through thick and thin and sickness and in health and all that. And, uh, but it, I don't know, it was, uh. I think uh, when they talk about sickness and, and health, I, I know they're also talking about mental health, but at the same time, it was like I'd, the mental health that I was living through was causing me some significant mental health crisis as well. And I was, I just didn't know how long that was going to be. And I wasn't ready to jump ship. Um, so I made a couple decisions at that point about how to... Basically, I kept thinking what the counselor had said wasn't true, that I really wanted to believe that it, everything that he had told me about our situation wasn't true. It was just his misinterpretation of the information. And so I decided to, at some point, I decided to uh, go back to school and get a degree that I could make money do. Uh, and I thought that the time it would take me to get a degree, hopefully things would settle down in our relationship and that, um, it would calm, calm everything down instead of working so hard to try and fix things, stop working so hard at trying to fix things and work at trying to be a better person and better our lives and focus on those things. And then the relationship would either follow suit or it would fall apart and it fall apart is what it did. <laughs> well, when you start getting healthier it gets harder to harder to be in unhealthy relationships. Yeah. Well, somebody you have to both get healthy at the same time or it's not going to work, I don't think. Nope. Um, how did the BPD affect your family financially? Uh, well, I really feel like 
in hindsight, at the time I couldn't see it, but I really believe that people who have significant emotional instability have a very difficult time making any kind of financial, uh, bringing any kind of financial security or financial peace in their, in their life. They, if you're emotionally unstable and then you cannot be stable in any other, uh, aspect of your life. Um, if you're, if you make decisions based on your emotions, how you feel at the moment, then you can't hold jobs and you can't uh, keep them for very long. And, and the dysfunction in the way you ha- uh, keep your relationships, I saw that um, at first uh, I only saw the side that he told me um, about how he was the thing, the events that would happen with his employer And I believed, of course, everything. I believed everything he told me, and I didn't see the other side of it. Um, When I was going through through the divorce, uh, one of his previous uh, employers actually asked to meet with me and wanted to tell me some of the events that had happened uh, that led to him uh, being fired. And they were sure uh, that I had not gotten the whole story. And I knew there, I always know there's two sides to every story, but of course I had only gotten his side of the story. And interestingly enough, um, even when he got fired at that, from that job, he told me at the time he got fired that they didn't like me, that it was my fault. He managed to even turn that the him getting fired into a problem, me being the problem, um, which of course was extremely crushing for me and made me uh, distrust people. And uh, it was a Christian organization. So I, of course, it was tied in I that's a spiritual abuse thing. So I distrusted Christians in the mix of tr- distrusted good people, distrusted Christians, Um, because of the things that he told me. So during the divorce, when I talked to um, this person about the things that had happened that led to him being fired, what the thing, the interesting things that they told me were, it was the exact same events and same situations and same types of conversations that he and I had had in our marriage that were leading to the destruction of our marriage and our marriage uh, the fact that we were in a divorce situation. It was exactly the same type of conversations. And I found it very interesting um, that their biggest complaints with him apparently had been complaints they'd had all along while he was working. They had been working on uh, trying to mentor him into better places, and he refused all of their mentoring. And um, one of the things that he would do is after they would spend hours uh, talking with him, trying to mentor him into a better place, by the end of the conversation, it was as if he never heard anything they said. And, and he would go on as if nothing had happened. And that was a chronic situation um, in our relationship as well, was this this constant conversation thinking we had made headway and we talked about things and then nothing ever changed. So I found that very interesting at that time. Um, so basically he couldn't keep a job 
even, uh, and that was, that particular job was probably the most stable job he had. And I believe it might have been three years he worked at that job. And that was the longest we'd ever, the most stable um, we had been and the the longest he'd worked anywhere. So it was a big, um, it was a difficult loss on our family's part because it was the only time in our my children and, and our, our lives as a family that that was considered st- stable. Um, financially, we were not wealthy at, at all. Uh, we weren't even considered middle class, but we were, we had a home, um, that we owned and my kids had, you know, regular kid activities and friends and birthday parties and, and that lasted all of three years. So, that was a difficult loss. Um, and of course, when he would lose a job, he wanted to move towns. He didn't want to just find a job somewhere else. He wanted to completely move to a different location. And that was a repetitive theme. And moving, unless somebody pays you to move, is extremely expensive. And of course, we never were at any of those type of jobs where anybody paid us to move. So we always had to come up with the money to move. Um, Savings was never a thing. Um, didn't we never were able to save any money? Retirement was not ever a possibility. Um, did a lot of work uh, working for himself uh, because he couldn't work with anyone else. <laughs> um, and we were because he never made very much money. We were always on government assistance, uh, as much as we could be to be able to afford to feed the kids and, um, insurance purposes and that kind of stuff. So about the time, um, I think young people can tolerate that for a period of time when you're really young, you think, well, this is just part of, this is just a kind of rite of passage to adulthood and you just go through these phases of being poor. And of course, all these older people who are parents and things would tell us, you know, that's just part of being young. You just have to go through this and you'll get through it on the other side. But the time when you're supposed to be coming through on the other side, we still were not getting any traction whatsoever in any kind of financial stability or security. And in fact, we were continuing to become more and more financially unstable and at one point, I found out that uh, the house that we had just, we had bought a house, um, a small house, and then we were going to add on to it. And he was really good with having lots of grand plans, very poor at following through with any of them. Um, but when we uh, we're able to get that house finally almost completed uh, with the addition, making it big enough for all of our five children. Uh, I found out that he had not been paying the mortgage uh, and it had been going on for about six months. Of course, he blamed that on me as well. And at one point when I had gone to get groceries, he made me take them back because we couldn't afford them. And I did, and I shouldn't have, but um, we even had some friends that found out that we were behind on the mortgage and they gave us a large sum of money to pay off, uh, to catch up on our mortgage. And he took it and, 
I, I don't remember. I feel like we went on vacation with it and it was just very poor money management, poor decisions. And his decision was we're so far behind, we might as well not pay anything, which really just put, put us in a situation where we were just at the mercy of when are they going to come take our house? It put us, uh, in, put us, put me as a, a wife in a position where I was c- concerned that at any day, I didn't know what the time frame was, but I started being concerned that if I left the house and came home, that somebody would have, would have come and changed the locks and taken our house. Um, it was just a very unstable, it was a very unstable relationship because of the financial choices that were made during that relationship. Yeah. How did that impact your kids? Like how, how has your ex impacted your kids? Well, I think all that is still playing out. Um, Some of my kids, because of the, specifically the financial insecurity, some of my kids have a perspective of money that is very difficult for them to overcome because they see the world through the lens of how they grew up. Um, uh, I don't know. Um, my oldest two children who watched everything the most, uh, and were, you know, more active part in all of the, the demise of our marriage, um, have a lot of, uh, personal insecurities. It doesn't take much to send them off their, um, off of their place of confidence, destroy. It doesn't take very much at all to push them away from confidence. Uh, one of my, uh, kids has struggled, uh, with accepting the fact that they deserve actually both the older two children struggle with the fact that they deserve to have a good, healthy relationship. And, um, it's funny cause they don't talk about it often. You just hear about it every now and then. Um, uh, one of my kids has a very fractured relationship with, uh, their dad. And then, uh, one of my kids has taken on, uh, an, an attitude that, um, and it comes out of a place of anger, uh, and tries to balance, always be the buffer for all things, uh, tries to make sure that everybody's, everybody's playing fair and he tries to level the playing field. And the way he does it is by, um, trying to create in his own mind, a reality that everyone is evil. Everyone's bad. Everyone does bad things. Um, and that way, if everybody does bad things, then nobody gets to win. And, it's kind of a sad uh, perspective for me to, for him to see that. And I think it's why he's struggled in even achieving any kind of long-term dating relationship because he's not willing to allow another person to win either. And, and I think that that's part of being in a, in a romantic relationship is you have to have an attitude that both people need to win at that or, or no one wins. And his way of, I think coping is he just says, well, if I make up my mind in the beginning that nobody's going to win, then I won't be disappointed. Um, 
my boys especially excuse their dad uh, for his behavior. I think uh, it's part of it is the male uh, boys in particular want their dad to be the hero. They want him to be their um, the person they look up to in their life, their their role model, so to speak. And if for them to accept the fact that he's not a good role model, they would have to acknowledge the fact that he has flaws that make him not a good role model. And then in part of their uh, desire for him to be that role model is they have to um, elevate the positives and make the negatives all disappear, pretend like they're not there. And I think that as they get older and they start making responsible decisions for themselves in life, I think they're going to see more and more um, how uh, they're excusing his behavior is really did them no favors and it didn't do their dad any favors. Um, and I think as they get older and they start having their own children and seeing things from a different perspective, a different male adult, a, a responsible male adult perspective, I think that they're going to have a different opinion of him. Um, but it takes time to see some of that play out. Um, some of my kids really struggle with healthy boundaries. Um, in fact, I would say all of them struggle with boundaries because they don't know where to draw the line. Um, as children, uh, somebody with somebody who's emotionally unstable with BPD, they don't know how to, uh, they don't have, the BPD person does not have good boundaries and they're always taking advantage of other people and overstepping other people's boundaries. And they will at times respect boundaries, but you cannot ever budge on those boundaries. You have to keep them intact 24 seven. And the second you let them let down your guard in one area, it, they break through the fence. And, um, I've tried to encourage my kids on how to have good boundaries, but they're afraid. They're afraid to have those kind of boundaries with their dad. They're afraid to set those boundaries because of the other flip side of the rage and the repercussions that comes, um, the belittling and the, uh, how, I mean, he just runs people down. I don't know. I guess kids call it roasting these days, but it's merciless. Um, he mercilessly talks about how stupid they are and how dumb they are. And he runs them down to the point where they don't uh, want to hold up boundaries, even for their own protection, because they are going to get torn down for any kind of resistance. Um, uh, so I guess, uh, and especially with children, one, one of the things that's really difficult and, and when you're trying to establish boundaries is, is how to have boundaries within yourself, how not to be, I've had a conversation with my uh, youngest about how not to be a sponge and absorb the, the emotions of the people that you're around, that that's, that's part of boundaries. It's not just a fence that's this imaginary place between you and another person, but it's really, um, not allowing somebody's junk and emotional garbage to soak into your heart and in your life. And 
and you have to learn how to not be the sponge in that relationship. And it's hard for children to be that way because they are sponges. And uh, by nature, they're born to be sponges and they're, they should be uh, able to receive love and affection from a parent figure like like a sponge. And so it's hard to have that conversation. It's one thing to have that conversation with your children when you're talking to them about people outside of the home. But when you're trying to teach them how to have boundaries within the home to people, they should be have a receptive relationship, receptive, loving, caring, trusting relationship with. And you're trying to teach them how those that's a really difficult place. And it's a difficult thing for them to understand. Um, and so what ends up happening is some of my children either have refused to, they just try to pretend like they don't need boundaries and then they deal with the aftermath of when things go bad. Um, and then other, other children, uh, some of my other children will just, they draw such hard boundaries that it's just a wall and then it makes it difficult for them to participate. And sometimes uh, I have one that seems she's really good at drawing, putting up walls and she'll put them up with everybody because she then doesn't trust anybody. Um, so I think that, uh, that the integrity of the, of, of yourself, I don't know how to put it, but, uh, Integrity of who you are becomes really difficult when you've grown up in a home uh, with BPD. And who you are and who you are not and who other people are and who who they are not and the difference between those things and how to be comfortable with that. And it's hard enough in a, in a healthy home for those things to naturally uh, develop in a child, but to put them in a borderline personality disorder home makes it astronomically more difficult. Um, I do think that uh, through time and therapy and healthy relationships that those things can be possible. And in fact, one of the things that was the most encouraging to me when we went to counseling, probably the single most encouraging thing was um, as we were discussing all the heart-wrenching realities of uh, our situation uh, as the counselor was talking with me privately, I was distraught over how this was going to affect my children in the, in the long run. And he assured me, uh, the counselor assured me that having studies show that having one stable parent in a situation like that can totally keep a child from going down a bad path uh, or following in those bad behaviors, because I was very concerned with uh, the example that was being set of irresponsibility um, by my ex-husband to my children. And he said, you know, you just continue doing the things that you do, be responsible, you know, can maintain your influence with your children. And that will, that has more of a outcome and their ability to grow up and be responsible adults and be emotionally available than anything else. And so that was encouraging. And that became my mission at that point, uh, through thick and thin, all the, all, huh? Hey guys, thanks for listening. Uh, Esther's going to be back next week. 
actually the next two weeks. This is a three-part episode. If you are fans, feel free to reach us on your favorite social media or favorite podcast platform. If you want to look into more more on Rachel and Recovery, always go to rachelandrecovery.com. And uh, we'll be back next week at 10 a.m.